So we're going to continue on here through this series, Equipped. Last week we were talking about, we've been looking at this armor thing. The thing is, is that we've got to understand something, is what we're trying to accomplish here. And the reality is what we're trying to accomplish is getting our heads on straight. That's really what it comes down to. Because, listen, there's a lot of nonsense out there. And I'm not even talking about church stuff. I'm talking about, we have to be able to divide truth from non-truth. Fact from fiction, good from evil, all of these different things. And so we've started in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, I don't know about you, but I like to be equipped. I like to be prepared. I like to know what's going to happen before it happens. Like, I don't like surprises, okay? I hate Christmas gifts. Like, just give it to me. Don't, don't put it under the tree for two weeks. Don't do any of that kind of stuff. Like, just give it, to, whatever. Like, I, I just don't like surprises. Surprise party's not my thing. Never has been. Just give me the facts. Like, just tell me what it is. For some people, when they have a baby, they're like, oh, I want to be surprised, you know, when, when they come out. We don't know what it is. I want to be surprised. Those people are crazy. Because I was equally surprised when the ultrasound tech told me. In fact... I even tried to bribe the ultrasound tech because I wanted a boy. Let me tell you something. I did not grow up around girls. I don't do girly things. This whole idea of coming up to me, oh, is my dress pretty? Couldn't deal with that. Didn't know. What do you say? What if it's not pretty? How factual do you be with the child? You know, so I'm thinking, okay, I've got to have sons. I can't handle this. All that was going back through my head is I had a friend of mine that was a pastor. He was a college quarterback, right? Athlete, man's man. Had three daughters. Right? Not fair. Now, fortunately for me, I didn't have the athletic gift. So it's like, well, maybe I got a shot at some boys. So here's what happens. We're sitting there with the ultrasound tech. Where I'm all ready, you know, let's get this thing going, want to know. I pulled out a crisp $20 bill. I laid it on the little keyboard of the machine. I said, you see boy parts in there. That's yours. I got my 20 back, didn't I, Ariana? Now, after we had her, I, I wouldn't change it for a world, you know, because now I was like, okay, I can kind of handle it. You're a little more emotional than I would like to be, but so are the boys. So I, apparently that didn't make any difference at all. It's like, why do you cry so much? You're a boy. Like, be a man. What are you crying about? Yeah, so the other one took the last cupcake. Who cares? There's more. There's not a shortage. Anyway, don't ask me why I'm talking about that. I can't help myself. But here's the thing. I don't like surprises. I want to know. I want to have a plan. I want to know what's going on, all of that kind of stuff. I want to be equipped in every situation. The problem we have in Christianity today, modernity has not been good to us because we're ill-equipped. When, as a church, everything has now fallen on the church structure instead of the individual Christian that makes up the church body. So the idea of evangelism has been lifted from the individual as a priority and a responsibility and has now been placed on the church structure. Thus, we have to do events and do these things to try to draw in the masses in order to get them to hear the gospel, in order to get them saved. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do that kind of stuff, but it was never designed to fall on a church structure. It was designed to fall on you and I individually as the church body. We are the body of Christ. Make sense, y'all, with me? So we have to be equipped to do that. How do we evangelize? Well, it's not complicated, but we sure try to make it. We just talk to people. You ever talk to somebody? Me too. Great. We're all qualified. 
That's literally all it is. Now, some people may find this hard to believe, but there was a time in my life when I was fairly shy and somewhat quiet. I know. I know. I know. The idea of talking to strangers was, was scary. All right? I don't know when it changed, but one day it changed, and I've never met a stranger since. So, you know, I'm, I'm buddies with everybody. I love everybody. You're all awesome, except for that one person that's an Oklahoma fan. But that's besides the point. But, but in all seriousness, so look what we've done there. Now, let's look at another thing. Once somebody's born again, what is our responsibility? We are to go and to make disciples. So to make a disciple, we lead somebody to Christ. Now we take them under our wing. Did you notice it said to make them and not wait for them to be birthed? It's not sit around, hey, I hope a disciple gets made. No, we, on purpose... Make disciples. We take people under our wing. We let them do life with us so that they see all the good and the bad and your responses and situations that you are in, hopefully carrying out a biblical worldview and doing things the right way, and then they respond accordingly. So when we think of disciple, we think of the 12. Well, what happened there? Jesus didn't start, okay, every week we're going to have a discipleship class, boys and girls. Well, there were no girls, boys. And you're going to come here and meet with me for one hour every single week. And then you go about your week. And we'll talk about the Bible. And we'll ask you how your feelings are and all this other stuff. That is not what happened. What happened is he grabbed 12 dudes and said, listen, hey, follow me. Next three years. It's going to pay off for you. It's going to be a little rough. But in eternity, it's going to be great. But what do we do today? We create discipleship programs. We have a once a week class. We have a Bible study. All of these are good things. I'm not saying they're wrong. But when we lift the individual responsibility and put it over onto the church structure in which it was never designed to carry, we're going to get a mixed bag of results. So what we have today is a bunch of people that went to a church service or an evangelistic meeting. I mean, how do you schedule a revival service? I've never understood that. Like, you have them, but how do you schedule? Like, you know when revival is going to happen and the true meaning of it is like, oh, we're going to have a revival meeting. Okay. How does that work? I don't know. But we've taken it and we've like, okay, that's not my problem, you know. I've heard this all the time. I've had people that have been walking with the Lord for 20 plus years, some of them longer than I've been alive. And when you say, hey, listen, this young guy just gave his life to Christ. Would you mind taking him under your wing? He's like, I'm no preacher. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. We don't do that in any other field. We only do that in Christianity. If you were a mason or you were a carpenter, there's these journeyman things that you do. You go underneath somebody for a very long time as you learn the craft. That's what we do. But now we've lifted that, put it over on the church structure and said, oh, I hope so. I hope this works out. Basically, what we have done in the church today is we grab somebody, they maybe get born again, they at least say the prayer, they bowed their head, they closed their eyes, they raised their hand, and they repeated after me. They must be right with God. We hand them a Bible and we say, good luck to you. Are they equipped? Absolutely not. In fact, it's impossible to be thoroughly equipped unless you have somebody to help guide you. Look at Philip with the eunuch. Eunuch's reading Isaiah 53. He says, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, um, no. So he explains it to him in passing. Every day we have an opportunity to do this stuff. We should be doing it, first of all, in our homes with our own children and family members, but we should be doing it as part of everyday life. If we're not, we're making excuses of why we're not. Let's just be honest, that's what we do. So, instead of making excuses, let's get active. Let's begin to equip ourselves and let's begin to equip others. You guys are all capable of answering questions. You may not have every answer, but you know what? Google does. That's a joke. Okay, it's all right. We'll get through this together. 
See, we've got to be prepared. We've got to be equipped. And that's what brings us back to the armor. We have been focused on this because, let's face it, we're in some crazy times. And we have to be able to discern good from bad, right from wrong, all of this kind of stuff. So let's look at this Ephesians 6. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, so stop it. There's a spiritual battle that's going on. No different than what the, the climate in America is today. It's a spiritual battle. Why is this? I got asked this question by a member of Rotary, actually, just this last Thursday. If you go to Rotary, then you probably know who asked the question. After everybody leaves, he's always the last one out the door. He's like, what, what is the deal with the Jews and the Arabs? Like, why do they hate each other? It doesn't make any sense. I said, you're right. It's got to be a spiritual thing. Because Israel has no natural resources that people are after. It was a wasteland for a long time. But there's something about that land. What is it? The only answer that makes any sense is there a spiritual battle that is going on. There's something that's happening. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but boy, we'll argue with them, won't we? All day long. The reason we argue is because we have a pride in us that we have to be right. So, moving on. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We made it. Now, we've looked at this each and every week. Look at this picture. This is the armor. We've talked about how every part of this is intricately designed for the individual. It was molded around their body. It was made for them specifically. So it wasn't like mass produce. Every part of this locks in together. Without one piece, it didn't work. You've got at the top the helmet of salvation protecting your head. You've got the breastplate of righteousness which wrapped around the back. All of it locking into the belt of the truth. Uh, sword of the Spirit. The feet shod with the gospel of peace. The shield of faith that says above all, putting above everything else. All of it works together cohesively, interlocking. You cannot have one without the other. You take away one, it all doesn't work. I talked about this, the law of irreducible complexity. It's your big word of the day. Write it down. You can't spell it, can you? You Missourians. I use this as an example. I brought one today. Mousetrap. We all love them, right? I don't know about you. I love hunting mice. And that's how I say it, too. We're hunting mice. Me and Isaac, we, we'd go on the hunt for mice. We'd, we'd know they get in the house. We'd set traps for them. We'd put on our camo. I'm just kidding. We don't own any camo. We'd sit around. I mean, we love, it was like every day we're like, oh, I think I got one. I'd check them traps two, three times a day. I don't know why I get such joy out of hunting these mice, but I do. Probably because in real life, I don't hunt because I can't shoot and therefore couldn't kill anything if I wanted to. So... But the law of irreducible, uh, irreducible complexity says this, that the unit as a whole only functions as a whole. You remove any part of it, it is now worthless. That is my translation, but that is basically it in a nutshell. In other words, here we have the mousetrap. It is comprised of five parts. First is the wood, the little base. Okay? Then you got... This thing here, I don't know what you call it. We'll call it the snapper, okay? It snaps. This is a real mousetrap. This is not a, a stage prop. Anybody want to? No? Okay. Come on up. No? No. Uh, 
I will not answer that question. They all go into a pile. I don't know. Listen, I, I mean, there's no mouse on it. You're fine. Anyway, you got that part. You got the part that makes a snap in the spring. When you pull this back, what do you got to do? You got to fold whatever this long, wiry looking thing is. I'm sure there's an instruction manual with proper names in it. I just don't have it. And then the last part that you lock into is the flapper, whatever that thing is. That's where you put the cheese, right? Peanut butter. We use chocolate. I was told a long time ago that chocolate is like heroin to a mouse. We caught a lot of mice with chocolate. Some of it gets eaten by the children, but before it goes on the trap. Before it goes on the trap, y'all, don't judge me, all right? So here's the thing. I know. Yeah, right. Antibodies, that's what we're looking for. Listen, they don't walk up like, oh, the mouse didn't get the chocolate. He's dead there. I'll just pick that off. That's not what happens, all right? Man, we are, we are off the rails today. It's too early for that. But here's the thing. If you remove any single component, you don't catch four-fifths as many mice. You catch zero mice. You guys get that? That is the law of irreducible complexity. It has to work as a cohesive unit or it does not work. You guys follow me? Anybody want a free gift? Okay, I'll just set it down here. We'll save it. We'll, we'll catch another one with it. How about that? What's that? Oh, I did that this morning before I started. We're good. Hopefully there's a residual effect on it. Anybody want to shake my hand right now? How about a high five, Kyle? No, nothing. No, 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 I'm good. Uh-uh, nope, I like my germs. We're, we are golden. It's a new trap. I was just messing around. Or was I? So here's the thing. When we look at, at this armor, go ahead and put that back up there. The nine-year-old's napping back there. The armor. Put the armor back up. Our, our normal tech guy is gone today. Okay. We think we've got it all figured out with all of this here. But here's the problem. There's actually a part that's missing. You know what it is? Because historians will tell you, because a, a lot of Bible commentators and such will look at Paul's writings and say, you know what he basically was probably doing, because he was likely sitting in a prison at the time that this was being written, is he's looking at a Roman soldier and using these as analogies. And he's just kind of piecing them together. Now, I showed you other parts of especially the Old Testament that use the same analogies, the helmet of salvation and such. But a lot of people think, well, Paul screwed up it's short by one piece they'll look at this and say well you know paul had an error because the armor was incomplete because he's missing one very key component that went with every single roman soldier it was a lance or a spear same thing we don't see that in fact paul doesn't mention it does he i find that odd but there's something interesting when you begin to look at the bible now when we look at prophecy in, in a Greek mindset, which is what, how we look at it, we look at prophecy as, as uh, something being prophesied and then fulfilled. It's a kind of a one and done thing. But to a Hebrew mindset, they look at prophecy in patterns. They have an already but not yet. Something may have happened, but it will happen again. All right? So the uh, uh, desolation of, what am I thinking? Abomination of desolation. Can't get the words right. That is something that happened prior to Christ being on the earth. And he says it's going to happen again. 
So it wasn't a one and done thing. It's this pattern mindset. And as you begin to study Scripture, you'll pick up on some of these patterns. And there are things in these patterns that you'll see six things grouped together. And then you have a plus one. You have a seventh completion. So you have six things that are uniquely tied together. And then you have this other one that fulfills it. But it's kind of like the six plus one. The seventh will be a little bit different, but it all ties together. You see that in the creation event. You've got six days where God is creating things. And then the seventh, what did he do? He rested. That doesn't mean he was tired. It doesn't mean he was wore out. In fact, he was laying out a pattern for the Israelites with the Sabbath day. So he was laying that out. You also see it here in a couple of different things. In Luke 18, verse 31, it says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Now, look at this. When we see this laid out here, it is laid out in six plus one. He'll be delivered. He'll be mocked, insulted, spit upon. They'll scourge him. They'll kill him. Six things all doing with one another directly. But on the third day, he will rise. Here's the seventh, bringing the full completion of it, but it is certainly unique. You guys kind of see that? We could spend a lot of time here. We are not going to spend a lot of time here because that's not the point of this, but I want you to see there is a pattern in Scripture that does this. This six plus one, it's kind of interesting. So in the armor, the first six pieces are immediately likened to something. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes, the gospel of peace. All of these different things are likened directly directly but then this last part isn't and he says to put on the whole armor of God and if he's using Roman armor which we believe that he was as a guiding light to this if you will then he shouldn't have left this last piece off this is the lance so if it's true that the lance is not part of our armor as a lot of commentators have claimed you'll see them say this stuff then it is not possible for us to put on the whole armor You guys following me? Because it's missing. The spear was a strategic part of this armor. If the lance is not there, then we don't have the whole armor. Therefore, we cannot do what Paul has instructed us to do. But let's look at these lances because there's a bunch of them. These were used by Romans. Uh, The army was varied in size and shape. Some were long, some were short. The old Greek lances that were used during Homer's time were normally they were made of ash wood, which is pretty strong. They'd be six to seven feet long with a solid iron head on the end of it. Ash is strong wood. The head would resemble either a leaf, it'd be a sharp barb, a jagged point. Sometimes it'd just be a triangle, it'd be a point, kind of like a pyramid or something like that. Some of these lances were small, others extremely long. The smaller lances were used for close battle, gouging and thrusting. Uh, The longer ones, they would hurl them from a distance. Think of a javelin throw type of thing. Something like that. There was a Greek historian named Xenophon. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly. But he said that the armies would carry a whole myriad of these different lances. Long ones, short ones, narrow ones, wide ones, pointed ones, dull ones, jagged ones, multiple bladed ones. It sounds a lot like those of us in the room, right? Short ones, long ones, dull ones. (laughs) Wide ones, yeah, I'll take that one, so... But the average Roman soldier would carry five different of these these spears, these lances. So it wasn't like it was unknown. Of all the lances in the ancient world that were used, the Macedonians would use the longest ones. They were somewhere between 21 to 24 feet long. Not inches, okay? That's the size of a telephone pole. So imagine hauling that baby around. It was a two-man thing. All right? 
But they would use them. And they would get them going, and, and don't ask me how or why or whose idea that was. You know, here's my guess is, is that the Macedonian government said, you know it would be a good idea. Let's get these guys some spirits, but let's make it so long that one man can't carry it. Kind of like government today, right? Whatever they put their hands in, they screw up. Now, the Roman army would use a lance that was called a pilum, P-I-L-U-M. I've got a picture of it here. You can see it. It's something similar to this. There's the ash wood. There's the end. Now, you notice how this is an actual artifact that was found. You can see how it's bent, and that's important. So the pylum would be between six and eight feet long, and the top three feet of it or so would be made of a soft iron. Now, why would you use soft iron versus a hardened metal? Well, there was a purpose to these long ones, because the purpose of the long one was not actually to stick you with. It was used to penetrate the shield that they had up. So when they would throw this, it would hit the shield, and because the iron was soft, it would penetrate it, and it would bend. How easy do you think that is to get pulled out? You ever try to remove a bent nail out of a piece of wood? Isn't that fun? You find out how good a Christian you are in some of those moments. I mean, we've got a tool handy. We can get to it eventually like that. But imagine you're in battle. You've got arrows flying at you and all of that. You've got your shield up. It gets penetrated. The thing is bent down. What are you going to have to do? You're going to have to drop your shield to either try to remove it or at a minimum, because now you've got this long thing sticking out there, it is going to slow you down. It's going to make you vulnerable. So, John 19, verse 31. Now, let's look at this. How do we know that the Roman soldiers carried these spears? Well, there's an obvious example in Scripture that often we don't think about. It says, therefore, because it was the preparation day, so they're getting ready for uh, Passover, that the body should not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first of, and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has uh, seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but the bottom line is, did you notice the Roman soldier did not like, hey, does anybody got a long spear that crosses kind of tall? No, they had them. Every soldier had one on him. That's what they used here, is this pylum. They reached up there and they pierced his side. Now, the other parts of this, there's two parts here, is, is the, John is laying this out. He's like, this is my testimony. I was there. I know it was true. I watched it happen. The blood and the water, if you guys came on Wednesday night when we were teaching how we know the Bible is true, is an example of, of a scientific and medical fact that we only discovered in the 1900s. Because many early commentators, when they read this, were trying to make heads or tail of what John was trying to say. They would say that the, the blood was an example of, of a cleansing as far as spiritually being, the, the shedding of blood, and the water must represent baptism or something like that. We do a lot of the same kind of stuff today. But because of scientific research and things like that, we now know that somebody who has gone through either a major car wreck or something of the sort will be subject to pleural effusion, which is a water thing that gets around the lungs and around the heart. And it separates. And so when it pierced his side, they saw that. What was John writing down? What he saw. It was his eyewitness testimony. He wasn't trying to make a spiritual point. He was writing down what he saw. We didn't put heads or tails of this together until we understood how the human body was working in the early 1900s. So this is something that we know is true. But the point of this here is the Roman soldier had a spear. We've read this a million times, but we've never really thought about it. 
He had a spear. Now, there's a Roman historian named Vegetius, uh, V-E-G-E-T-I-U-S. He wrote about the military institution of the early Romans, and he talked about another lance that they would use, this other kind of spear. It was about five and a half feet long. It had a three-pointed head, kind of like a trident-ish, not really. I couldn't find a good picture of it. Um, it was between nine, the head was between nine and 12 inches long. It would be later modified into three and a half feet long, and the head was five inches in length. The cavalry would use one that was 16 to 17 feet long. Okay, so riding on a horse, you think uh, Sir Lancelot, you know how they joust? Think something along those lines. Um, it was extremely effective against people on the ground because you're riding along and there's people standing there and you just hold on to it and stick them. Yeah, this is lovely. So the Romans introduced this. The Spanish really adopted it. They brought the concept to America when the Spanish came over. The Indians of the Southwest took uh, this idea, primarily the Comanche tribes. If you look at them and study them out, you'll see that they used a lot of this. Most Indians would ride uh, in on horses or they'd jump off of them to fight, and the Comanches would spear them from their horses, giving them a great big advantage. You're in an elevated position. You've got a weapon that you can reach somebody from a distance. Those are good things. The white folk brought the gun. We took care of all of it, didn't we? That's a long distance you can hit somebody from. It was such an effective weapon, it was used for hundreds and hundreds of years. So this thing has been going on. Different sizes, shapes, used for different purposes of battle. The heavier the spear was, the more deadly the wound. Also, the further that you could throw it. So it gave you kind of some momentum going on there. So what does this all have to do with spiritual armor, and why are we looking at this? Well, we are talking about the different size, shape, and length of these lances for a reason. Because Paul is laying out a pattern of the entire range of these lances and spears as he comes to the issue of what? Of prayer. He gets into this. Look at verse 18 again. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So, the words there, all prayer, is the Greek word dia pasis prosukis. I don't know, again, I'm, I'm not Greek, all right? This would be better translated if it said all kinds of prayer. Praying always with all kinds of prayer. Some of your translations may say it that way. Paul is telling us, after he's gone through every aspect of the armor, that the final weapon that we utilize, is prayer. And this imagery is all these different kind of lances that they would carry. They'd have five different ones, six different ones. They'd have the long one, and they'd have several of the different kinds of short ones. He's instructing us to use all forms of prayer as it's needed. They would pull out the one that they needed in the moment. God has given the church all kinds of prayer. There are different kinds. We're going to talk about that. It's to pray with all manners of prayer. Pray with all kinds of prayer. Pray with all kinds of prayer that is available to use. In other words, don't leave something behind. Paul writes about the different types of prayer. It's this picture of these different lances available. The long ones, the short ones, the wide ones, the narrow ones, so on and so forth. And what he's telling us here is there's no one kind of prayer. So when it comes down to this, here's a question. For a Roman soldier, how often did they pull out these Lances, these spears, how often did they use them? For us, we should say, how often should we pray? Okay? Well, it says pray always. That word always comes from the Greek word in ponti, Cairo. It means at each and every, which is an all-encompassing word embracing everything, including the smallest and most minute of details. And Cairo means times and seasons. So when these are put together, it should be translated at each and every occasion. 
So it could be translated at every opportunity, every time you get a chance, every season, each and every possible moment, you should spend time in prayer. No matter where you are or what's going on, the opportunity that you have at every possible moment, take time to pray. We're going to drill down on that a bit here shortly. But prayer is often ignored in this. You know why? Because the six are obvious, but this last one gets overlooked because it's not immediately associated directly by Paul to a piece of armor. Everything else was. This one wasn't. It's actually more exciting to talk about the shield of faith. Stand therefore. Above all, I mean, we do all this stuff. The, the sword of the Spirit, we talk about that one. The helmet of salvation, we talk about all of these things. We don't talk about prayer. No one piece of armor is more important than any other because they all worked in unison. You take away any one of them, you are now ill-equipped as a soldier. For a believer, we are ill-equipped if we are not prepared, constantly putting these on, being prepared for this. There are six kinds of prayer that are mentioned in the New Testament. We're not going to get through all six today. We're going to go through about half. But the first one being the prayer of consecration. This is the most common word for prayer. This is the Greek word, prosuki. Again, I, I can't pronounce these. But it's used about 127 times in the New Testament. It's what Paul has said right here. Praying always with all prayer. Now, this is broken into two parts. The first part of that is the word pros. Now, when you think pros, what do we think? Somebody better than we are. Right? Pro athletes. You know, you get two carpenters side by side. One that's kind of green and one's been doing it for a while. The one that's been doing it for a while is called pros. When you go to Home Depot, you're looking, I need some new tools. They've got a section called pro tools, which means not for you and I. You can buy them, but it's because you're covering up for inadequacies in your life. They've got sections of that. There are, there are pros. Professional drivers. Right? There's only one person in this room that can take a corner at 60 mile an hour and still hit her parking spot. Right, Yoli? <laughs> you know when she's here because you hear the screeching of tires and you see the dust of the gravel in the parking lot. She's coming in hot. But here, that's not what that word means. This word pros is a preposition is used and it means face to face. The word pros in John 1 is used to uh, intimate the relationship that exists between the members of the Godhead. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, pros, and the Word was God. It's taking from the word pros, this intimate relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and in the Word was face to face with God. The word pros is also used in Ephesians 6.12 to picture our close contact with this unseen demonic spirits that have been set out against us. You don't even know it, but you are face-to-face with them every single day. They are attempting to influence you, attempting to come against you. This is why this armor is so crucial. Everywhere in the New Testament that it is used, the word pros carries the meaning of a close, upfront, intimate contact with something else. So we think spiritual, but it doesn't always have to mean that. The second part of the word prosuk is the yuk word. And it's an old Greek word that desires a wish, desire, Prayer, a vow. It was originally used to pick a person who made some kind of a vow to God uh, because of a desire or a need or something that was in their life. That's how its original usage was basically laid out. They would vow to give something of great value to God in exchange for a favorable answer to prayer. 
They would lay something out there describing a, someone's beginning a walk with God or starting out on a new venture. You see the idea with Jacob when he stole the birthright. Genesis 28 verse 20 says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I will return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So he's laying a vow. If God will do this, then I will do that. He's made a vow to God. Another example is the story of Hannah. She wanted a son. She ended up having a son named Samuel, but she desired him so much so, and it was this great desperation to have this child, that in 1 Samuel verse, or chapter 1, verse 11, she said, and she made a vow. It's the same thing. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be on his head. Now, that's a Nazarite vow. If you don't know what that is, I encourage you to look that up. But she made a vow. Lord, if you will give me a son, I will consecrate him to your use for his entire life. A little different time, a little different era, but this is what's going on. Jump down to verse 19. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So in exchange for God giving her a son, she vowed that he would raise her son to be solely devoted to God and in the work of the ministry, in the temple service there. You see people do this all the time. Lord, if you'll just get me out of this situation. I'll do anything you want. I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll give to the poor. I'll go to Africa. I mean, whatever it is. People do this stuff all the time. But in Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, Going a little farther, he fell to his face on the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Technically, these are all in that same thought. Making a, re- a request. It's people seeking an answer of prayer would bring God a gift of thanksgiving. They would bring a sacrifice of some sort. Often before a person verbalizes a prayer, he would set up a commemorative altar and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. These were called votive offerings because there was a vow attached to it. Attached to it. So it's an offering that was similar to a pledge. They were kind of making a petition to God I wouldn't say buying his favor, but that's, that's kind of how it is implied here. So once the prayer was answered, they would go back and give an additional thanksgiving offering. So before they made the request, they would bring an offering of thanksgiving to God, make the request, and when the, the request was answered, they would make a second one. So they, it was sandwiched, bookended with thanksgiving sacrifice. So this is the backdrop For this word, this prosuki. First, it tells us that prayer should bring us face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with God in an intimate relationship. That's number one. It's a little more mechanical than that, but our formula to follow, but, but basically that's it. But the idea of sacrifice is also associated here. It shows an individual who's so desperately desiring something, something that they want, something they want God to answer, that they will exchange anything for it. It's an altar of sacrifice and consecration and a prayer is when a person's life is yielded entirely to God. You'll see the Holy Spirit convict somebody, dealing with somebody on that. You see this all the time throughout Scripture. Think about all the different times that people were praying, looking for an answer, praying, looking for an answer, and how God provided. When we offer a genuine prayer of faith, which never stops thanking God in advance for hearing and answering our prayers. 
In the Greek usage of this word, there is an active surrender of consecration to thanksgiving. The idea is that we are face-to-face with God, so in order to be that, what must we do? We give a sacrifice of praise. We come to Him thanking Him. That's the first one. The second one is the prayer petition. This is the second most used one in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word desis. It's often translated prayer and petition. It's more than 40 times in the New Testament like that. In Ephesians 6, 18, it says praying always with all prayer and supplication. That's one way to say it. Desis is often translated supplication. It's taken from the verb deomai, D-E-O-M-A-I, which is most literally describes a need or a want. It's the picture of a person that has some kind of need or desire in his life. And so as time passed, the word need uh, began to take on the meaning of prayer and the kind of prayer that expresses one's basic needs and wants to God. So when we look at this, our very basic needs and desires are tangible for our larger homes. This is what we look for in America. We want a bigger house. We want a bigger car. We want whatever. But this is not talking about that directly. This has to do with our basic needs to continue in life, to sustain life. That He is providing those things, not the prayer that we are looking to advance or keep up with the Joneses or anything like that. You see it used as a cry for God's help. And when a person is doing that, they recognize their insufficiency and reliance upon God. Okay? I know this is a lot to take in, but you've got to see some of this. So in Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Was He spared from death? No, He was not. Ultimately, He was in the resurrection. This prayer is the word Jesus, you're seeing Christ's humanity, and he was aware of the weakness of his humanity, but yet he overcame it. He prayed deeply from his heart, asking the Father to provide divine assistance to help him in his humanity. He was so aware of that, he prayed, uh, he'd pray these strong, crying uh, prayers and tears. He'd talk about the blood that dripped from his I mean, there was a lot of tension that was going on. Now, some will try to make these into a formula. It's not a formula. It always comes back to the heart. There aren't certain words you have to say. It's the attitude of which you approach God. If it was simply the actions that one take, then any way one approached the temple would have been good enough. But yet Moses said, listen, you have uh, circumcised your flesh. I need you to circumcise your heart. God said that I had no desire for sacrifice. He's looking for a crucified heart. So, Jesus crying out to God to empower Him to meet His most basic needs for the strength and power that He's going to need to come into what He's dealing with. In James 5, verse 17, it's used again. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. This earnest prayer is taken from the same Greek word. So Elijah, who was great, and he was a mighty man of God, he, was, he recognized his own inability to do anything significant for God out of his abilities. And he faced a lot of backlash because he was dealing with a wicked king and his wife was even more so. So they're killing people who believed in God. They introduced idolatry to Israel. They killed kids in idol worship. I mean, it was, it was, it was a bad thing. So Elijah prayed for God's judgment so the people would snap out of it. So there was no rain for 42 months. And he's got this showdown with the, the, the prophets of Baal and all these other things that were going on. And then, of course, ultimately, it rains when he prays for rain. So it's this cry for help. A person recognizing themselves as incapable of meeting their own needs and crying to God because only he can. 
I get asked all the time why we don't see the results as far as healing is concerned in America the same way you do in other parts of the world. One of the reasons I think is because here we have multiple avenues to reach out. When you've got a headache, pop an Excedrin. Something bad happens, we've got, great, we've got some of the greatest medicines in the world. But you go to other parts of the world, if they get sick, they've got one hope. If God does not respond then they have no hope. They have to rely on God where we don't hear. Same thing with meeting your basic needs financially. Here, you fall on hard times, government will step in, people will step in. You go into different parts of the world. Listen, some people will help you if they can, but a lot of times they don't have the, own, the ability to do so. So it forces you to rely upon God. You guys stand with me? I know this is a lot to take in, but i got to get you to see this. So this petition and prayer exposes our insufficiency and continual needs for God. These are part of these six different kinds of prayer. We're going back to these lances. The third one is a prayer of authority. Now this comes from the Greek word aiteo, A-I-T-E-O. It's used about 80 times in the New Testament. It's the third most common word for prayer. It's basically, I asked or I demand. This is how it's used. Now, it seems strange word to use for prayer because when we think of prayer, we think of somebody who is humbly requesting something of God. But this describes someone who has an authoritative prayer, almost demanding something from God. Now, that seems a little far-fetched until you begin to think this through because this person knows what he needs and he's not afraid to boldly ask God. Step right up, ask for what you want. So unlike the word desis, which has more to do with spiritual needs or spiritual things, Iteo has, is more tangible. This is the food, shelter, money type thing. This is something we need. So when one approaches God with such frankness, how does God respond? We've got to ask that question. John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. That word, you will ask, the word ask, Iteo. Ask what you desire. It could be translated, you should demand what you will. Now, this is disturbing to most people. Most people cannot wrap their head around, wait a minute, well, I'm demanding something of God. Look for the lightning, it's coming, right? God's firing up the smiter. But if you keep the context, it makes a little more sense because at the beginning of the verses, if you abide in me and my words in you, the word abide is used twice. Meno is the word abide, to stay, to dwell, to lodge, to remain, to indwell, to continue, to remain in constant union with or take up permanent residency. You could say it like this, that if you permanently and habitually lodge, dwell, abide, abide, remain continually in me, and if my words permanently and habitually uh, lodge, they dwell, they remain continually in you, you will be able to strongly ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus knew that if his words were to take permanent residency in his heart and mind of anybody who asked, that they would never get out of line with what God's will was. In other words, we put the first thing first. So we're to renew our minds with what? The Word of God. What is the Word of God? If you look at it this way from a, a Christian standpoint, the, the, the Bible in and of itself is our constitution. It is the law of the land of which we have uh, certain rights inside of in certain expectations not because of what we have done but because of what God has promised and if God has made a promise of which he does not fulfill then this is no longer true and God is no longer a man of his word if you will so therefore when we come to God praying according to the will of God we do not have to worry if God is going to hear us 
We don't have to worry how God is going to respond if we know what God has said. It's His promise. The Jews had promises by God. He promised Abraham that he would give him a son and make him the father of many nations. In order to be a father, what do you need? A child. Good place to start. And so, did Abraham ever doubt God? Sure he did. Because he made Ishmael. But here's the thing. God knew that Isaac, once he was born, was the son of promise. Then God threw something weird at him. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab Isaac. I want you to take him up on the mountain. I want you to kill him. Abraham's response was, okay. Maybe Isaac was having a rough day that day. Maybe he spent too much time on YouTube. I don't know. Mouthed off to Sarah. Who knows? But he walked up there willingly. Isaac, and there's a whole pattern of, of development inside of this I don't have time for today. But he takes him up there. Isaac's like, hey, uh, we forgot something. And Abraham's like, no, he didn't. The Lord will provide himself a ram. But the thing was is that from the moment that God had said, this is what I want you to do, what did Abraham know? He knew that God had promised that Isaac would have children. Therefore, no matter what happened on that mountain, God would take care of it. So he boldly marched up the mountain with Isaac, prepared to do what God had asked of him. And of course, God intervened. You guys see what I'm saying? There was a boldness. There was no doubt. There was never doubt. Hebrews 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, understand this. We don't have thrones here. We didn't grow up in a country that has a king or a queen. But what you did not do to the king or the queen is enter the throne room uninvited. This says, come in boldly and find the grace to help in time of need. You obtain mercy this way. Boldly. Ladies, you kind of you know this probably better than men do, because if we're talking about thrones and you've got children, do they knock or do they barge? I'm talking about the bathroom if you're not picking up what I'm putting down here, okay? They don't care. They don't care what you're in the middle of doing. They just walk right in. Right? How y'all doing? Hey, can I have a snack? Can you give me 15 minutes? Maybe you don't need 15 minutes. Can you give me 30 seconds? Whatever the case may be. Like, can you get out of the room? We went there, didn't we? I mean, that's the thing. This is a confident entering in. Why? You did not enter into the throne room unless you were invited because it would cost you your life. Here he has told you to. Enter boldly into the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Walk right in. Boldly make your petition. This is also found in 1 John 5, verse 14. It says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. That word confidence, same one. 
It comes from the Greek word parisia. It always depicts someone who is exceedingly bold and courageous. The verse goes on to say, ask anything. Iteo. The word is used again to connect the knowing the will of God for one's life. He's echoing Jesus' word in John 15. If the word of God permanently indwells in us, if we pray according to that word, we can come into the presence of God and make a request known with great boldness, courage, and confidence. We can walk up the mountain knowing God's promises are true. It doesn't say that we have to question them. It doesn't say that we have to sit there like, oh, I don't know if God wants this or, or not. We know this, that the word is true, that these promises are true. And if he's made a promise, that he will fulfill it. Therefore, when we make prayers to God in that manner about dealing with any promise in Scripture, we don't have to say, Lord, if it be thy will. We say, Lord, I know you've made provision. I know that you've done it. I know that you've taken care of it. I'm standing on your promise. This is not my word. This is his word. If he had not taken care of Isaac to the point of even raising him from the dead, then he is not a keeper of his promise. Abraham had no doubt. He knew. That is where we need to be. But this is just the beginning because it talks about all kinds of prayer. There's more prayer. And we're going to go into more of that next week, but I want you to get an understanding of this. We think of prayer in two approaches, in two approaches only. The first one, I need something, God, make it happen. Well, usually a time of desperation is really where we enter into prayer. When, when, when the duty hits the fan, if you will, like, God, I hope you can make something happen here. I need you. The second time that we, we pray, it's over our food. Lord, bless this food to our body. Amen. Those are basically the two kinds of prayer, but yet to Paul, when he says all kinds of prayer, looking at the Roman soldier, I'm making the leap to this lance, but I also knew that they had these multiple ones that had them all the time. We saw the example where they had it on their person. They just have it that day. You see pictures all the time. They would stand there with them on guard. They would have them. It, was, it would be in the back part of, of the armor. There are all kinds of prayer. We enter boldly knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. 